Let's do a recap. I like to start with a recap because all of this stuff works together. Last week, we finished up chapter two. And um, the second half of chapter two is all about the covenant perspective of who we are. So before we were in Jesus, when we were outside of Jesus, we were covenantally isolated from God. We were alienated from um, Israel and all of that. And then when we um, come into Jesus, we're in Messiah, then um, we are no longer foreigners, but we're citizens and also we're household members of God's family. We talked about the two ways that Jesus um, brings non-Israelites, Gentiles, into the covenant family. He does that by destroying the barrier wall, the enmity, that hostility between Jew and Gentile. He dealt with that on the cross in his flesh. And also we talked about how Jesus sets aside the Torah of commandments and decrees. And that's how he brings in Gentiles into the covenant family of God. We talked about Paul's nuanced perspective of the Torah, of the law, and um, how much there is going on. There's just a rich background to when Paul talks about that Torah of commandments and decrees. Those commands that God gave are good and righteous, and they're a blessing from God. But because of uh, the condition of humanity being in rebellion and under captivity to the powers, there were all these secondary consequences that came from the giving of the law. And those weren't intended by God. And one of those was that hostility that was generated between Jew and Gentile that Jesus dealt with on the cross. So that's our summary from last week. This week, we're moving into chapter three. It's always exciting when we get to start a new chapter. It took us two months to do chapters one and two. So if you are sitting out there thinking, this is taking forever, be excited today because we're going to do all of chapter three in one Sunday. Yay, right? It's exciting. Chapter three functions in the letter to the Ephesians as a culmination summary of these big, heavy concepts that we've already covered in chapters one and two. So, like I said, we'll do all that today. I'll break it into two sections, though, just to make it more manageable, because it naturally kind of has two sections. And we'll start with verses 1 through 13. I'll read those to you. If you want to follow along in your packet, feel free to do that. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Messiah Jesus, on behalf of y'all the nations... If indeed y'all have heard of the arranged plan of the grace of God, which was given to me for y'all, that it would be made known to me according to revelation, the open secret, just as I earlier wrote about in brief, into which you are, after reading, able to comprehend my insight into the open secret of the Messiah, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of humanity, as it is now revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the nations are co-inheritors and co-body members and co-possessors of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the good news, of which I became a servant according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me in accordance with the working of his power. There we go. 
to me, the lowest in status of all the holy ones, was given this grace to announce good news to the nations of the incomprehensible richness of the Messiah and to illuminate for everyone what is the arranged plan of the open secret, which was hidden from ages and God, who created all things in order that now would be made known to the rulers and to the authorities and the heavenlies through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God. In accordance with the plan of the ages, which he accomplished in Messiah Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. Two ways to translate this through his faithfulness or through faith in him. Therefore, I request that there be no discouragement about my difficulties on your behalf, which are your glory. All right, so that's the first half of our third chapter. If we go back to slide one, you'll notice something here. In verse one, Paul is starting off like he's going to pray. He's going to close up this half of the letter. He's going to say, me, Paul, the prisoner, on behalf of y'all, the nations, I pray this. But he stops. You see this little dash here? He breaks, like Paul often does. He breaks from his prayer, and he's going to elaborate on two points before he moves back into prayer. These two points he's going to elaborate on are he's going to talk more about y'all, the nations. He's going to revisit that. And then he is going to elaborate on his low status as a prisoner, which is really important uh, lesson in the kingdom. So first lesson, first thing he wants to talk about this y'all of the nations is covered in verses two through seven. He starts to talk about this open secret that was made known to him by revelation, that he has an insight into this open secret of the Messiah and that he's going to share that with you and you'll be able to comprehend it. He's talked about this in the previous two chapters. That's what he means when he says, what I wrote about in brief, he's talking about what we've already gone over. You're probably wondering, what in the world is an open secret? That's a weird translation. I've never heard that before. And it is really different, but it's really good. Let me just explain it to you. So that word open secret is usually translated mystery in our English Bibles. And um, it comes from the Greek word mysterion, which is where we get our English word mystery. So it seems fairly logical to just translate mysterion as mystery. But there's some subtle differences that are really important here. Mysterion is defined as a mystery or a secret of which initiation is necessary. And that's the important part. The Helps Word Studies talks about mysterion in these terms. It says that in the Bible, a mystery is not something unknowable. Rather, it is what can only be made known through revelation. So, for example, it's made known by God when he reveals it. That is a totally different take. It's a little bit of a different twist than what we normally consider a mystery. In English, when you think of a mystery, you think of something that maybe can't be known, or it's like some puzzle that's really difficult that you've got to work out, and you've got to strive to try to figure it out, and that's not, what, that's not helpful um, if we think about mystery in terms of scripture, because there are things that God does reveal to us. There's things that God wants to reveal to us, and we can know. So we should be encouraged that this mystery that Paul is talking about, this open secret, refers to something that 
um, previously wasn't known, but now has been made known through revelation. There's always some mystery to God in our traditional sense, right? Because he is who he is, because his ways are higher than ours, because he's infinite and we're finite. But at the same time, there are many things that we should know and that we can know, especially those things which he outlines for us through the word. So translating this as open secret is clearer in that it does portray something that used to be unknown, but now has been made known through revelation, which is so much of what you see here. In other generations, this open secret was not made known to humanity, but now it's been revealed by the Spirit. So you can perfectly see how, as the letter goes on, it lends itself to that interpretation, that translation as open secret. So what is the open secret? Because of the way these slides work, sometimes it's hard to point out, but there's a little gray arrow here. You can see it better in your packet. So it connects you to the open secret of the Messiah, connects you down here to verse six. This is what the open secret is. It's that the nations are co-inheritors, co-body members, and co-possessors of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the good news. That is a summary of everything that we went over last week. All the stuff we talked about with Jesus bringing the Gentiles into the covenant family of God. And isn't it interesting to think that Paul sees this as the big reveal, as a big, as the big open secret. If you were to say, if you were to ask me, what's the open secret of the Messiah? I might say something like, it's that we can be saved and we can dwell in the heavenly realms with God and that we have an eternity ahead of us of dwelling with God. But Paul's saying, it's that Gentiles are going to come into the family of God. It's that Israel's Messiah is also the Messiah of all humanity. And we're so far removed from the culture divide of Jew and Gentile that to us, we're just, that's a theological fact. But in Paul's time, that was huge. And he revisits it over and over and over again all throughout the New Testament. So I, I like to think about that and what bearing that has for me today, that that divide is closed up and that the two are made into one in Jesus. So that's the open secret of the Messiah. Then in verse 8, Paul is going to go into talking about himself and about his status as a prisoner. He calls himself the least of the holy ones. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about grace. The gift um, that God offers us is a grace gift. And Paul highlights the incongruity between the bigness, the richness of the gift that God offers us in salvation and our unworthiness to receive that gift in ourselves. Like there's, we don't merit that gift in any way. There's no way that we can be deserving of that. So there's this big mismatch between God's grace and our worthiness. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's highlighting that incongruity, and he's applying it to himself, saying that I'm the one who used to persecute the followers of Jesus. After all of that, I've been given the grace to minister to that same demographic of people, to reach out to them and to share with them the apocalypse that I've had about who Jesus is. 
he goes on to share his two-faceted mission. He's got two points to his mission that he points out here. The first one is he's going to announce the good news to the nations. Um, he's going to tell them that they are also being offered the gift of being included in the family of God. And uh, that's a big deal. And he's also going to illuminate for everyone the arranged plan of the open secret that was hidden from the ages in God that is now being made known. So this is his two-faceted mission. He's going to share and spread that apocalypse that he's had that God, through Jesus, has begun new creation right here in the midst of humanity, in the midst of this present dark age and that Jesus has made atonement for the failures of people who will accept him, and he frees them from captivity to the powers. He's going to illuminate that for everyone. As he talks about illuminating this and about this thing that has been made known that wasn't known before, it's going to be made known to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenlies. That's recalling the conversation and the discussion we had about the powers in the heavenly realm. It's going to be made known to them, too. One of the main ways that it's made known to them is through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God. There's never a time when I read this verse that I'm not totally blown away. To think of the church as the multifaceted wisdom of God made known to the powers and the heavenly realms. It doesn't say that the church makes it known by doing lots of cool stuff. It's just by existing. The church, by its existence, makes known the wisdom of God to the powers in the heavenly realms. It just makes me think that we don't, I don't think we can really grasp and understand our former predicament outside of Jesus, like what that was. To think of us as this multifaceted wisdom of God, there was a big change that took place. To us, it just feels like one day we were here and now we're sitting in here. It, <laughs> there's so much more to it. Um, that's going to be one of those amazing things about eternity is to be able to comprehend all of those things. There's so much to this being the multifaceted wisdom of God. And part of it is that as the church, we have new identities that are established and sustained in Jesus. We're no longer defined by what anyone or anything else says that we are. And because of that, we are empowered to no longer be divided and manipulated along those dividing lines of identity. We're something completely new in Jesus. We have had such a stark example of what it is to have your identity rooted in Jesus. Think about the last couple years. Think about the events that have taken place in the church, in the world, and how that's filtered down into the church and caused so much division. So many opinions have risen up and become essential to people's identity. Their opinions on how social justice things are handled or how COVID is handled or how vaccinations are handled. They've divided people in the church. I mean, consistently, as we visit with other church leaders um, around the nation and talking to people, as we go to these conferences and things, they all say, did you guys lose people because of COVID? You know, and we're like, no, 
which tes- testimony to you guys and how united this church body is, but it is over and over a story of how people have been divided over all of these different issues above and beyond the fact that they're brothers and sisters. They just walk away from relationships, from churches. And I would say that in some of those situations, they forgot what their primary identifier is. They forgot who they are first and foremost, that they are in Jesus, and that's what identifies them, not the way they feel even strongly on anything else, really. That's the identifier. So God's wisdom is shown through the church, and it's also shown and that he uses a crucified Jesus to disarm the powers, and he uses a persecuted prisoner in Paul to announce the good news of the disarming of the powers. We've talked a lot about how Jesus's crucifixion was an inversion of shame and honor. Jesus didn't compete for earthly power at all, and he didn't have victory the way that people expected him to have a victory. The expectation was that he was going to defeat Rome, that he was going to reestablish Israel as a nation, that he was going to install himself as their king. That's what the victory was supposed to look like. And it appeared that his death on a cross was shameful, and people mocked him for it. People still mock Jesus's death on the cross. They still say, really, that's the plan for saving humanity is for someone to die on a cross. Yeah, that's the plan. (laughs) It appeared to be this shameful thing, but actually it was an act of honor, of love, and of courage that the world has never seen before or since. Jesus's victory was in no way according to the categories of the powers. He didn't start a war. He didn't start a social revolution. He didn't oppress people. He didn't use violence to control people. He didn't use charisma to motivate people. He didn't do any of those things. It wasn't according to the powers. It was according to the kingdom that Jesus had his victory. It was according to the ways of the Father that Jesus had his victory. Paul upholds this same example here in verse 13 when he tells them, to not be discouraged. Don't be discouraged about my difficulties. They are your honor. They are your glory. He's upholding that same inversion of honor and shame. Given the culture that these people lived in that he's writing this letter to, it would have been pretty dicey to say that the founder of your community was a prisoner. That would have been something that was a shameful thing, much less to say that you're proud of this person, your leader, being in prison, and that it is your glory, that it's your honor. But Paul outright tells them that that is the case, that his difficulties are their glory. It's to their honor that he is imprisoned as their leader, because it's a sign of God's power to overcome those dark forces in the heavenly realms. It's a sign of the kingdom, that God is doing things his way, and it is not according to the old categories. It is something new. This quote sums it up really, really well um, from Timothy Gombas. Paul exults in his present occupation of a shameful, weak, and humiliating position. He glories in his imprisonment, calling himself Paul the prisoner. 
Further, he claims that it was specifically to him, as the one who was less than the least of all the saints, that this grace was given, stressing his own unworthiness and lack of fitness for the task. Paul emphasizes his utter weakness and inability so that the triumph of God in Christ might clearly be seen. If Paul were in a position of political strength or earthly power, the clarity of this display to the evil powers might, in some measure, be diminished. Paul, therefore, highlights his humiliation and his weakness. He's doing that same thing that Jesus did. There is no mistaking about who won the victory through Paul. It was God's glory, the things that Paul did. It wasn't according to power, the normal structures of society. He was a nobody. He was in prison. He was a shameful, persecuted person, locked up. And um, he still did all of these incredible things. It was according to the kingdom. And this is a lesson for us, too. When we live out things, when we live our lives with humility, when we live out servanthood, when we live out concepts like he who is first shall be last and he who is last shall be first, we are increasingly conformed to the character of Jesus. We glorify God when we do those things, just like Paul did. But also, think of it this way. When you do those things, when you live out the character of Christ, you're making a victory declaration to powers and principalities in the heavenly realm. You're telling them that you don't play by their rules anymore because you aren't even part of the game anymore. The moment that you accepted that free gift of salvation, you were plucked up out of that game and set on a firm foundation on a rock, just like what we sang about this morning, where you can build a real life for the kingdom, something that echoes into eternity. You are not playing by the rules of those powers anymore once you're in Jesus. And because Paul had that vision of the apocalypse that we've talked so much about, he had that revelation. He knew, he saw his low status as glorifying God's victory. He saw it a lot like David in the Old Testament. He glorified God in his victory over the giant because he was this tiny little guy. He couldn't even wear the armor. He was just the shepherd boy. And he came in and defeated the giant, and God got the glory because there was nothing in him that he should have been able to do that on his own, but he had faith, and the Lord worked through him. So that's the first 13 verses. Paul is going to return to his prayer. This is a great indicator that he's going back to where he left off, because in verse 1, he starts with, for this reason— And then he breaks off to talk about the nations and his status as a prisoner. Here in verse 14, he's like, okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to pray what I was going to pray before. He starts with, for this reason. For this reason, I bow my knee to the Father, from whom every family clan in the heavenlies and on the earth is named, so that he would give to y'all, according to the richness of his glory, power, to be strengthened through his spirit in your inner human. Another different translation. A lot of your translations will say inner being, inner self, or inner man. 
Uh, when you look up this word in the Greek, it's anthropos, which is um, gender neutral. So it basically refers to humankind. This is just a really literal translation. So your inner human, your inner person. Power to be strengthened through his spirit in your inner human. That the Messiah would dwell in your hearts through faith, having been rooted and established in love, so that y'all would be empowered to comprehend, along with all the holy ones, what is the width and length and height and depth, to know the far beyond knowing love of the Messiah, so that y'all would be filled up unto all the fullness of God. Now to the one who is powerful beyond all things, to do over abundantly more than what we would ask or conceive, according to the power which is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Messiah Jesus for all generations of the age of the ages. Amen. So this is Paul's prayer. When we look here at the very beginning of it, you'll see he's going to revisit a ton of concepts here. Um, God is portrayed as father, as the patriarch, who has all of these family clans that he is naming. God names a lot of stuff. If you look at Genesis, that's what he does. He separates things and he names them. When he names something, it gives it function and it gives it identity. And it's talking here about his heavenly and his earthly clans, which is a recall on so much of what we talked about, about the two realms, the realm of heaven and earth. God has his heavenly family, those beings in heaven that are loyal to him. And he has this, his tribes of the earth, those people that are in Messiah Jesus. And in verse 16, he's praying so that they would have power to be strengthened through his spirit. Power here is a recall to chapter one. We talked about the power that God gives to us, um, that he has toward those who trust. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is what he's talking right here. And he's saying you got to have that power to be strengthened and have that transformation in your inner self. That power works in you to tra transform you. And he's praying all of this so that the result would be so that the Messiah would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would be rooted and established in love. There's two really key words here that are a callback to something we talked about last week. See if you can spot them. Two key words. They have to do with the temple and with the tree imagery, the tree of life. Dwelling. Anytime we talk about dwelling, that's recalling um, temple vocabulary, temple language. Um, the temple was God's dwelling place. Now we are God's dwelling place. And the temple was filled with God's presence and we're filled with God's spirit. And then, uh, let's see, rooted. That's like a tree being rooted and established in love and, and growing and producing fruit, um, abiding in the vine. All of those things tap into that language we talked about last week or the week before. And he wants you to comprehend this along with all the, the holy ones. Comprehend this far beyond knowing love of the Messiah. So he wants you to know something that is far beyond knowing. He's making a point here that's like never stop receiving revelation about the love of Christ, but it's going to go on forever. Like it's, it's going to be something that you can dwell in for eternity. 
which is a cool thought. So let's review up to this point. I've been thinking a lot about how individualistically I think when I read scripture. And if this doesn't apply to you, then I'm not picking on you. But if it does, I am. Um, This is the way that I would read this so far in summary. I would say, Paul is praying for me to have power so that I can have Jesus dwelling in my heart and I will be rooted in love, which will empower me to comprehend Jesus and his love more deeply. But he says here, we and y'all the whole time. And he says he wants you to do all of that along with all the holy ones. As I've gone through this letter, you can't miss the communal nature of so much of what Paul talks about. He talks about it in terms of a body, of a community of people. It's so much less individualistic than I normally receive it. So the focus, when we talk about unity, unity is so important in the body of Christ. When we talk about it, the focus is usually on avoiding division, right? Um, Don't be divided. But how often do we see unity as something essential to our identity as the church and to having a deeper revelation of Jesus' love? How often do we actively seek out ident- or, uh, unity instead of just avoiding division? The church is globally made up of people that have no reason to bond together in their flesh. Um, when they're under captivity, when people are under captivity to the powers, they have no reason to come together. They're all divided, right? But in the church, but in Jesus, we're committed to each other, and we help each other grow because of each other and in spite of each other. So in the church, when you meet someone who's different from you, it's going to help you grow. You get to see the world through another set of eyes that's not your own. You get to get outside of your own experience and your own comfort zone, and it helps you grow as a Christian. You might also come in contact with people that challenge you, and that will help you to grow in spite of your differences. So we're all unified, but we're not uniform, and that's a good thing because it helps everybody to grow. So even in a church where people are very much culturally similar to each other, you can often find someone that you just don't naturally gravitate toward in your flesh, somebody that you could easily clash with. You can find that even in churches with people are very similar. But seeking to love and to build a common connection with that person that you would normally not want to, if you do that, um, you're going to have an experience of the kingdom. Building that common connection with that person because they're your brother or your sister, it's going to deepen your understanding of Jesus' love. A good way to practice this. When you encounter other Christians that are maybe outside of your denominational circle, they might have some different ideas about interpreting scripture than you do. When you encounter those people, make it a practice to approach interactions with them with an attitude of humility. Instead of coming to those interactions and saying, I have something to teach you, come to that and say, you have something to teach me. And if you do that, your interactions with those people will change completely. You know what gets disarmed when you approach with humility? Competition goes away. 
that is such a big divider in people who have different denominational backgrounds is they have this, they want to compete with each other. Whose ideas are better? Control goes away. All of that falls away. And all of a sudden you're both able to have this mutually edifying experience learning from each other, loving each other, and building each other up. And it's an amazing thing that we should be able to do in the church because we're unified in Jesus. Cutting across those boundary lines, meeting other Christians that are totally different from you, is experiencing new creation. It is a glimpse of that fulfillment when we all dwell together in perfection. And you can feel it when you do it when you have those breakthrough experiences with people that are different from you and you take something away from that that has value and you sense that they have done the same and you've both been built up, that's what it's like to be in heaven. Like we should really seek after those opportunities. And I would go so far to say that if you don't engage brothers and sisters that are different from you, there will be depths of God's love that you miss out on understanding. It's just an experience that you have to seek out and that you have to have. It's totally supernatural, and you have to get out of your comfort zone to do it. Expose yourself to some people in Christ who are different from yourself. So I feel like we've touched on a lot in this prayer of what is a repetition from chapters 1 and 2. But this culmination graphic really helps to sum this up well. So in this prayer, verses 14 through 21, is it's a culmination of all of these core principles that we've already talked about. It's so much so that almost every phrase from verses 14 through 21 picks up on a core theme or word from earlier in this, in this letter. So you'll see here in this column, this is the prayer where they've broken it down phrase by phrase. And over here in this column, this shows you all the links that go back to chapters 1 through 3. And in this column, this is the different subject matter that's being connected. So you can see God uh, has his two realms, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And they're united. They, are, they overlap. There's an interconnectedness between them. So we talk about the two realms and the two families, and that is all echoed from chapters 1 and 2. In the heavenly realm, where every name which is named, things in heaven, things on earth. Moving on down through here, talk about God's richness, his lavishness, his abundance, the richness of his glory. This is a theme that's played out in talking about his generosity, his power, and his grace, and how those are drawn from an infinite storehouse of riches. So you can see all of these words are a repeated theme. These are the things that Paul's like trying to drive home through repetition. It's important to say them over and over again. Remember, this was being read out loud to people. They weren't necessarily reading this themselves. So he's trying to hit these high points over and over. It goes on to talk about the spirit and power. In verse 16 here, where he says he wants you to have the power to be strengthened by his spirit in your inner human. We talked about how that power was connected to the power we talked about in chapter 1. And there's all these other connections of the power working in people and that being through the spirit. God's new temple 
his new house being built according to the house plan as a place for God to dwell was a really big theme that we finished up chapter two on last week. So you see here in verse 17 of chapter three, the Messiah dwells in your hearts through trust. And that is echoed here in chapter two, what we talked about last week and in other places as well. This just goes on and on. God's love Um, The temple, the new tree of life, again, being rooted in love, having this foundation and growing into this holy temple, this dwelling place for God. The apocalypse, we've talked a lot about that. Words associated with heaven in the apocalypse are to know, to understand, to comprehend, to have insight. That is a really important theme for us as believers. So it's right here. And it's connected back all the way to chapter one. And then we talk about the new temple. The church is the new temple filled with God's glory. At the end of chapter three, filled up unto all the fullness of God himself, that filling temple language. And in the end of chapter one, the church, his body is the filled upness of the one who fills all things in every way. That's a lot of fullness. Everything's filled up. That's us. So that is the end. Do you see how all of those themes are just going over and over and over again? It's amazing to me how Paul's brain just spins like a top because he has been so immersed in the Hebrew scriptures. It's what he grew up on, and he was marinating in that. So as he begins to expound on all these incredible things that Christ has done for us, the way that Christ has fulfilled all of those different types and things, He just, those metaphors just pour out of him. And he's talking about trees and living buildings and all kinds of stuff. And it's just really fun to dwell on and to think on, just like he did. All right, end of chapter three. Next week, we'll start chapter four. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much um, for your revelation. We thank you so much that the things that were previously unknown, you have made known through your spirit, Lord. Thank you that you share your wisdom and your plans with us, God, that you empower us to be united. We thank you so much for all that you're doing and all that you've done, Lord. I pray that you help us to live our lives as an offering to you. Always, Lord, to be glorifying you, lifting you up and proclaiming your victory, Lord. Be with us this week and help us to do that in more and more ways, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.